be seated. And a very warm welcome to you uh, to Evensong this evening. Can I get you to turn with me, please, uh, to Exodus chapter 14 and 15 uh, in your, our Old Testament reading today. It's page 66 and 67 of the Church Bibles. Page 66 and 67. So if you could get that open first. And then, when you've already got page 66 and 67 open, if you don't mind, just to keep your finger there, and if you can put your bookmark on page 1173. We're going to refer to it later, so if we find it now and put the bookmark there, then later on we just flip, flip, and flip back, okay? So, uh, bookmark in page 1173, but open on page 6667. And if you'd like to follow the sermon outline, there is an outline in the center page of the uh, bulletin, uh, so you can have that open as well, uh, and that gives the outline of uh, where we're going this evening. Well, we've got that. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, thank you that uh, your Spirit has been speaking to us uh, through your Word, uh, as it's been read and sung, and we pray now that as we come to consider this passage, uh, that your Spirit will keep doing that work, uh, that he would empower me to preach your word rightly in his strength, uh, that he would work in each one of our hearts and open our eyes uh, to see the wonderful salvation you've wrought for us in Jesus um, and uh, to uh, respond uh, in love and obedience to you. Uh, so please, Father, uh, would you be at work in us by your spirit through your word uh, as we come to you now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, anyone who comes to church for a little while will quickly realize that we are a people who sing. Why do we sing in church? Well, there's a number of reasons we can get from the New Testament. Uh, we sing to give thanks to God uh, for what He has done for us. Uh, we sing to encourage each other, uh, to press on in, in Christ. Uh, we sing to teach each other uh, the Word of Christ. Uh, all kinds of reasons why we sing, but in the passage that we're looking at this evening, we see God's Old Testament people singing. Uh, and as we see why they sing, uh, we also see a big reason why we sing. Before we look at the passage, though, let me remind us of where we're up to in the book of Exodus. Uh, we finished uh, just before Lent. Uh, we came up to the uh, end of the last series. You remember God people, they had been slaves in Egypt, but God rescued them through Moses. He sent plague upon plague upon plague on the Egyptians. And after the last and the worst plague, Pharaoh finally let God's people go. And we ended that series with hundreds and thousands of Israelites streaming out, leaving their homes, uh, and joining the, 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 the line, the group of God's people heading out from Egypt, uh, going towards the promised land. They are led by God himself, Yahweh, in the day, he leads them as a, in a pillar of cloud, at night by a pillar of fire, so they can travel anytime he wants them to. But that's not the end of God's plan. Just getting them out of Egypt, that's not going to be enough. God wants to gloriously rescue his people and thoroughly defeat the Egyptians. And he's got a plan that you and I would never have thought of. He speaks to Moses in chapter 14, verse 1, and tells 
him where he wants the Israelites to camp. And the idea of verse 3 is for, the, for Pharaoh to think they're trapped. For God says in verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Well, Pharaoh does that. He changes his mind about letting Israel go. And so he sends out his army, many horsemen and chariots, including 600 elite chariots, to chase after them. Chase, 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 chase. And finally, they're catching up. And verse 10 says that when the Israelites see them, they fear greatly. Here they are, a whole big bunch of civilians, and this is the elite Egyptian army. And they cry out to the Lord. That's good, isn't it? They cry out to the Lord. But then they spoil it by what they say to Moses in verse 11. Is it because there's no graves in Egypt? You've taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't that what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we can serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Ayah. God's just rescued them from Egypt. All those plagues following this pillar of cloud. And just when things start to look threatening, they lose their faith in him. And they start blaming poor Moses. And Moses responds by reminding them of the promises of God. He says in verse 13, Fear not, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. God will fight for them. They will be passive. Because God is going to save them in such a way is that it's perfectly clear that He is the Savior. Not them. And all the glory will go to Him. So God says to Moses in verse 15, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel might go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so they go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his horses, chariots, his horsemen, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. What an amazing plan. And notice that the really important thing here is that God is going to be glorified. And God will be glorified as He is known. And God is known as He does His acts of judgment and salvation. Sometimes people are a little bit uneasy about the idea of God being glorified. Or God bringing about His own glory. And that's because we think about it the wrong way. Whenever a fellow human being tries to glorify himself or herself, that's, that's pretty ugly, isn't it? I shouldn't glorify myself because, because I don't deserve it. I'm not God. And when I start seeking to glorify myself, well, I'm stealing the glory that is rightly his. But God is God. He is truly deserving of all glory for who he is. And the best and most appropriate and fitting thing in the whole universe is that God is glorified. That's what the universe is for. 
And we've seen in verse 28 that God is glorified as he is known, and God is known through his acts of salvation and judgment. He will be shown to be the God who punishes his enemies and saves his people. And so here's what happens first. You remember how God has been in front of Israel, leading them in a pillar of cloud by, by day and a pillar of fire by night, right? Well, in verse 19, he's called the angel of God. Somehow or other, this is both Yahweh God and also the angel or the, the messenger of God, right? A little bit like in the New Testament, huh? Jesus is both God and he is sent by the Father at the same time, right? And so this angel of the Lord who is in front moves around to the back of God's people, stands behind them. And you think, why? Because who's coming up from the back? It's the Egyptians, isn't it? God is going to protect his people from the Egyptians. He hasn't conquered the Egyptians yet. He's going to soon. But first, he will make sure that, that his people are safe from frontal assaults. And so he stands between them and his people. On the Egyptian side, it's a dark cloud. On the Israelite side, it's a bright and lights up the sky. Interesting, isn't it, how God has experienced this two different ways, by his people and by his enemies. And there's no way for either party to cross to the other party's side. And then the action begins. In verse 21, Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drives it back by strong east wind. God, the waters are divided. So there's a dry seabed left in front of Israel. And the people have to trust God enough to do what he says and to walk along that path. That's all they can do. Trust God and walk along the path. Hebrews 11.29 says, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land. They walk in the middle of the sea in this wall of water on the right and left as they walk across. Probably a little bit scary, I would have thought. But if you trust God, then that's what you do. And then, well, they are going through, and the Egyptians decide to go in after them. Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen, and God looks at the Egyptian forces behind the Israelites, he throws them into a panic. Their, 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 their wheels get clogged, their chariots get stuck, and they get scared. They know they're in a particularly vulnerable position. They say at the end of verse 25, let's flee before Israel. The Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And their fears are well grounded. For the Lord says to Moses in verse 26, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, upon their horsemen. And Moses stretches back his hand in the sea and the sea comes back. And the waters cover the chariots and the horsemen and the armies of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites, and they all die. And the people of Israel have walked on dry land from one end to the other. That, my friends, is the Old Testament picture of salvation. Yahweh saved Israel, verse 30 from the hands of the Egyptians. These enemies of God's people who seem so powerful just a few hours before this, so powerful that God's people say, I wish we didn't leave Egypt at all. Their bodies were washed up on the seashore. God judged his enemies and saved his people. For in the Bible, judgment and salvation go together, two sides of the same coin. 
They were so scared of them before. But now, verse 31, Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord and his servant, Moses. This exodus, this great judgment and salvation, this is the, this is the great definitive act of salvation in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, God's big definitive act is even greater. And that's what we've been celebrating over Easter, isn't it? On Good Friday, Jesus faced the judgment of God on behalf of us for our sins. Like Israel, he cried out to the Father for salvation. Unlike Israel, he never complained. He never grumbled, oh, why did you send me down here and get all crucified? He never lost his faith. The Father heard his cries. For on Easter Sunday, God raised him from the dead. God the Father saved His Son. He is risen, never to die again. That is God's big, great act of salvation. But that's not all. Because through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has also saved us. You remember when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke's Gospel, He's talking to Moses and Elijah, and he's, it says He was talking about His departure, His exodus, that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Because you see, the Old Testament exodus is a shadow of this one. This is the real one. Jesus was going to accomplish the exodus through God's mighty power. Remember how the exodus, the Israelites, they were trapped in this hopeless kind of situation, sea on this side, Egyptians on this side? And remember God didn't say, well, do your best in fighting the Egyptians and I'll help you along. There would be other times when he would want them to fight, but not this one, because this is the time he's setting up the paradigm so that we can understand what salvation is about. This real salvation that all this is pointing to, this, is a real, this, this real re rescue is something that we can't help with, because our enemies are enemies that we can't hope to fight. We can only be rescued from Satan and death and hell if God says to us, stand back, let me fight on your behalf. And at the cross, he does. Keeping your finger in Exodus, flip with me to your bookmark in Colossians 2. Colossians 2, and look at verse 13. Colossians 2, verse 13. Apostle Paul says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were dead, right? If you're Israelite, Fighting against an Egyptian, I maybe can fight a little bit, lah. But if you're dead, you can't do anything at all. It's even worse. But you were dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What did God do? God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. God made us alive. How did He do that? Well, first thing He did was He forgave our trespasses. How did He do that? He cancelled the debt of sin. It's as if there's a, there's a legal record of sin, all the wrong things we've done, all the things where we deserve God's punishment of death that we need to pay for. And what has he done with this list? Verse 14, he cancelled the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, back in those days, when someone was to be executed on a cross, they would put the charge against them, uh, uh, stick it up on that cross there. 
Alright, so that anyone can see, oh, this person has been crucified. Why? You see, ah, okay, okay, because he murdered so-and-so and da 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 Right, you, you, you've got the charge. And what Paul is saying here is that your charge, my charge, God nailed it to the cross. And Jesus paid the penalty for us. Jesus cleared our debt for us. We are saved from the penalty of sin. But that's not all. That's not all. You see, in New Testament times, some people thought, well, you still need to hand, learn to handle and appease and, and, and you know, do all these rulers and authorities, these spiritual powers, these, the, these evil forces, all these things. You've got you to work out what's going on with all of them and you've got to appease them. Gotta... Sometimes people still think that today. Right? But what does Paul say here? What does the Holy Spirit say here through Paul? Verse 15, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, when Christ dealt with our sin, he dealt with whatever hold that they've got over us. We don't need to worry about them anymore. Satan, the accuser, and all his spiritual powers can't use our depths to, to accuse us and they don't have anything on us. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities. The God who defeated the forces of Pharaoh at the Red Sea has defeated the forces of evil who were against us at the cross. And like Israel, we could not contribute to this. We were passive. The victory is the Lord's. And all we need to do is to trust Him. No need to fear them. No need to be scared of them. If we're in Christ, they have no hold on us anymore. The enemy has been defeated. And this, my friends, is good news. Now, going back to Exodus... Let's see how Israel responds to the, the wonderful salvation they experienced. Well, you see, they're, they're, they're so happy. They're so grateful. They're, they're so excited. That, that, that their response is, is to sing. And chapter 15 is their song of praise. They sing about what God has done. Moses, the people of Israel, they sing the song of the Lord. They sing in verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. God has won that decisive victory over the Egyptians. And they not only describe what God has done objectively on the outside, they describe what that means for them in their hearts on the inside. And so they say in verse 2, The Lord is my strength. I know He's the one who protects me. He is my song. He's the one I delight in. And he has become my salvation, the one who saves me. The salvation that has been won out there means they love and trust God in here. And they sing of that. In verse 3, they describe God as a, a warrior. And then in verse 4 to 10, they show it by telling the whole story of what has happened in this, in this Red Sea uh, Exodus event in poetic form. They actually recount in poetry the story of God's great act of salvation. They remind each other in song. And this is the song they're going to sing over and again. They remind each other in the song of what God has done, that great act of salvation. And so all the way from verse 4 to verse 10 is telling that story again. And because of this salvation, they know that Yahweh is unique. Who is like you, verse 11? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And of course, the answer is no one. No 
No one's ever saved the people for himself in this great and glorious way. No one has ever shown his judgment and salvation in such a great way. That's the point. There is no one like him. But this God who has done this thing in the past, he will continue to exercise his judgment and salvation. And so in verses 12 to 18, they sing prophetically about the judgment and salvation to come. They sing how God is going to bring them into the promised land and what he's going to do with their enemies there because they know God has kept his promise in the past. They have confidence for the future. And so Israel sings gratefully not only of what God has done, but also of what God is going to do. And so we are left this picture at the end of verse, in verse 20 and 21. We have this picture of Miriam, the prophetess, with a tambourine. It's more like a hand drum than the kind of tambourines we have today. And they've got all these women following her with a tambourine and dancing. And Miriam is urging them songs, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider has been thrown into the sea. Great picture of celebration and joy and, uh, 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 for, for the great acts of God's salvation. Well, brothers and sisters, like the Israelites of chapter 15, we have reason to sing for joy from the heart. In fact, we have far more reason than they. We too sing of God's rescue in the past. We praise Him for the cross. We are so thankful. We're so amazed for the way He's done that. We would never have thought of that. We were slaves to sin. Now we are free, free to serve Him, to be His people forever. And so we will sing, love's redeeming work is done, fought the fight, the battle won. Alleluia. We'll praise him for the resurrection. Jesus was dead. Now he's alive. We have new life in him. So we sing, up from the grave he arose. We praise him for the future because we know that God has promised a resurrection and glorious eternal future to all who trust in Jesus. And so now we sing, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And we know that even in this future, salvation and judgment go together. And we know that God will judge the world and put an end to our enemies of sin and death and Satan. And he brings in the new creation where death is no more. And we sing, Jesus lives, thy terrors now can no more, O death upon us. And like Israel of old, we declare that there is no one like him. There is no God who is ever saved in this way. There is no salvation like the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. And like the Israelites of all, we too sing of our own subjective response to him. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. But even as we sing of our response, the focus of our singing is never meant to be on us, but on the Lord in whom we delight. So brothers and sisters, Let's sing about the exodus of Jesus and our own exodus joyfully, enthusiastically, like Miriam did of all. Right? We mustn't sing about the way God has saved us half-heartedly as if we're not really excited by it. Of course we are. Sometimes it's hard to, to, to sing, and that's why God in His great mercy has given us choir and a piano and an organ to help us, and He's given us each other to help each other to do so. So we sing to help each other to sing as well. On the other hand, God forbid that having so much to sing about and such a great salvation to rejoice in, that we should get together and sing meaningless phrases over and over again in an attempt to artificially create some kind of excitement. No, 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 no. Look at all the hymns in your bulletin. Our singing has 
content. And the content of our singing is the great salvation of God. Joyfully we sing of the salvation in the past. Joyfully we sing of salvation in the future. Salvation leads to singing. Finally, brothers and sisters, let us take courage from the experience of the Israelites. For like the Egyptians, our enemies, sin and death and Satan, they seem so powerful now, and they do. They seem so threatening now. They seem so scary right now, sometimes really scary. But like the Egyptians, they will soon be gone. That is God's promise to us in Jesus Christ. And God is always faithful to his promises. So God says to you as he says to me, fear not. No matter what the devil throws at you, you stand firm. No matter how things look on the outside, don't lose heart like the Israelites. Cry to God, but keep trusting in Jesus. And at the very end of the story, you will see God's salvation. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. And then for all eternity, on the other side of the sea, you will recount what God has done as together with the multitude of God's people from down through the ages, you proclaim it to others. And as you do that, God will be known and God will be glorified for the way that he has saved you all the way in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great salvation that you won for your people Israel in the Exodus. We thank you for that even greater salvation that you've won in the Lord Jesus Christ by raising him from the dead. And thank you for that great salvation that you've won for us in him. We thank you for salvation in the past where at the cross you defeated our enemies. You bought our forgiveness. You've given us new life. And we belong to you. And we thank you for the salvation of the future where sin and death and Satan will be defeated forever. And we will be with our Lord Jesus, giving you thanks and praise on the other side of the sea. Father, we pray that you give us such certainty and such joy in this salvation uh, that we would be people who will sing your praises from our hearts, knowing that you are our strength, you are our song. You are our salvation. You are our God, and there is no one like you. Help us to keep loving you, keep serving you, and keep trusting you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.